0: Hello and welcome to Impact Quantum, a podcast about quantum computing for developers and engineers. This episode is entitled Can Quantum Computing Prevent Another AI Winter?, was recorded on a live stream and is rated 1 Schrodinger. It also contains several movie references, such as World War Z, The Terminator, and Star Wars. Without further ado, here is your host, Frank Lavinia. But, first... Here's some dubstep.
1: So this is Impact Quantum, and I'm going to talk today about can quantum computing prevent another AI winter? Winter is coming, an AI winter, that is. If you're not familiar with the term AI winter, it refers to a period in time when innovation in the AI field stalls. Now, this is due in large part to lack of computing power. Um, And now this eventually, this lack of computing power leads to a lack of innovation, which then ultimately dries up the funding, the VC funding, which in turn freezes work in the field. So when it comes to AI and computation, we, or computation in general, we think we're immune to limitations of hardware. And we've been fairly blessed over the last several decades because of Moore's Law, where the idea that you could fit more transistors on a chip and you can get more uh, computing power. And it doubles every, you know, depending on who you talk to, 12 to 18 months. Um, and in your, in your hands, I mean, literally in your hands with your cell phone, you have, millions of times more compute power than NASA had at their disposal during the Apollo 11 program. If your servers, your site is under heavy load, just shell out some more cash and you can scale. You can scale up or you can scale out, right? Scale horizontally, scale vertically, however you want to scale. You can do both. So access to computing power these days is generally not an issue. I mean, I could spin up, I could spin up a very powerful Uh, VM in the cloud, anybody's cloud. But at the cutting edge of research and development in AI, we might be reaching a limit of what's feasible, certainly economically, or possibly even possible. Ooh, that sounds funny. Possibly even possible. Recently, MIT researchers have sounded an alarm that deep learning is reaching the limits of our current computational systems? Does it sound alarmist, right? Clickbait? Does it sound far-fetched? Well, not so fast. Um, you probably have heard now of GPT-3 and it is the uh, text generation model. It's a transformer and um, that has 175 billion parameters. Now, depending on who, what source you read, this to train this model with that many parameters on on a corpus of uh, of documents and text, and if you've not played around with GPT three, it is uncanny how good this thing is. I mean, seriously, it's it's science fiction level of text generation. Uh, perhaps on my other show, Data Driven, we'll do a um, kind of a deep dive into it. Now, depending who you believe, this cost about 4 to $12 million to train this thing. Depending on how you're going to use it, how you're going to monetize it, I'm not sure who's going to get that investment back or how. I think that's a, an interesting creative problem. But anyway, you slice it, $4 million, still a lot of money. Twelve million million, three three times that amount. So it's still a lot of money. But it really was money well spent. I mean, GPT-3 is a milestone achievement in the field of NLP, right? Natural language processing. Now what's interesting is in terms of scaling, GPT-2 was really good at this, right? And GPT-2 was the predecessor and it had 1.5 billion parameters. And honestly, there's a good chance it would have passed the Turing test because it was really well. So you go from 1.5 billion parameters to 175 billion parameters. So you can imagine how many parameters would GPT-4 have, right? How much would that cost to train, right? Well, I only have one data point right now. But the fact is, is that this cost and this, the amount of compute at these edges are going up. The Turing test was developed in the 50s by Alan Turing, the founder of modern computer science. And ultimately it was designed to test a machine's ability to uh, demonstrate intelligence equivalent to or indistinguishable from human intelligence. And basically the test was a, a, a human would judge whether or not a natural language conversation uh, over a chat kind of uh, mechanism would be human enough and a that a computer would be unable to talk. Woo, it's blooper day. All right. So basically the idea is that the computer would have a conversation with a human. And if the human can't tell if it was talking to a computer or another human, then it would. um, Then it would that AI would pass the Turing test. Now, what's I think surprising for a lot of folks is that um, AI has been around for decades. Um, Alan Turing did a lot of his innovative work in the 50s. That means we're in the seventh decade. Of AI research. So, since Alan Turing, there have been advances, and more important to this conversation, stalls in AI research. DARPA cut a lot of funding to research problems, DARPA being the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, I believe. And they are known for creating the internet, for really kickstarting the self-driving car revolution um, in the early 2000s. And ultimately, DARPA cut this, cut a lot of the funding because there wasn't really that level of progress. If you think back to the 50s and the 60s, people thought—you look at the sci-fi at the time—people thought that AI would be commonplace um, in in you know the not too distant future. Keep in mind, this is 40, 50 years ago. We're still not quite there, although we're closer than we would think. So in the 80s, we saw the rise of expert systems and early work into neural networks. In fact, a lot of people are surprised that neural networks research into that really boomed in the early 80s. However, the costs of these systems were becoming prohibitive or impossible due to processing power constraints at the time. Does that sound familiar? So the longest AI winter so far has been basically from the late 1980s until the early 2010s. Although maybe the you could debate with me um, whether or not the early days, the heydays, uh, the early days of big data in the late 2000s uh, would, would count as part of the end of AI winter. It certainly was the AI spring, if you will, uh, or the start of it. While actual AI research and innovation stalled, science fiction AI blossomed. Terminator, Star Trek, the, with the computer-activated voice. Um, and Commander Data, who was an Android. And of course, the 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 ones that really kicked us off in the 70s were R2D2 and C3PO. My first brush with AI came um, during kind of like smack in the middle of the AI winter in the mid 90s uh, when I was a com- computer science student. And there was actually a course offering called AI. And a professor was a noted researcher from IBM um, and was you know decorated in doing a lot of this. And his big shtick was Prologue. He would always praise Prologue to the sky. And I never understood, to this day I still understand it, <laughs> why he was so hot on Prologue. But I mean, it was the early 90s, right? We uh, This was really when the internet was just a, uh, and the web was certainly in its infancy. Um, So to hear him talk about Prolog, I mean, it was the programming language and paradigm for the future. And it was coming. It was, it was, it was just inevitable. Right? It was just around the corner. I've heard a lot of things in, in my career that are just around the corner. Uh, sometimes I've been right. Sometimes I've been wrong, but wrong in the right way. Um, so after working through the class projects, I was kept waiting for this big reveal of like what made Prolog innately intelligent, never came and the final project was really more about recursion <laughs> um than any kind of uh, with with the sprinkle of um logical inference it was not skynet right i i felt like i had been lied to in the course description um so i finished the class deflated and really just thought that ai was either science fiction or just a bunch of if then statements ultimately and recursion kind of all of them were all bottled in. So this really left a bad taste in my mouth and I was very skeptical of AI, right? Hard to imagine, right? Me being skeptical of AI. Um, I even saw an early demo of what ultimately Microsoft released as the uh, Computer Vision API Cognitive Service at uh, a DC tech fair, oh, about five, six years ago. I was a little impressed but The guy showed, and I actually have a YouTube video that I recorded, and I'll I'll put that in the show notes. Um, He showed this thing, and he showed a picture of a cat in a window, and the AI came back with a description saying, "This is a cat in a window," and I was impressed for about a quarter second, and then I realized, you know, there's probably some kind of underwhelming explanation under this, right? Fool me once, fool me twice, right? So since then, and my experience, I, I I do a much better job keeping an open mind i kind of implemented if you if you're familiar with uh, world war z right they have the 10th man rule right so if i if i initially react to something with extreme skepticism part of me is kind of like i really should take another look at this with a slightly more open mind right that has um helped me kind of uncover things including this right so when i'm starting i started hearing whispers of slowing innovation in ai research my first inclination was to dismiss it right away. However, because of that experience, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should take a closer look at this. And this was November. And this is ultimately the genesis of what you're listening to now um, is, is the Impact One podcast. And the idea was um, I hadn't been to be at an internal conference um, that Microsoft Research throws every year, twice a year. This is back when we could travel on planes and not have to wear masks. This was the before time for sure. And um, this conference, um, there was the second day keynote was about hardware. And again, I I thought I was going to learn some big shebang thing about AI. But it actually was about hardware. And here's the thing. It was actually interesting. In fact, I even recorded a a data point, which is um, a, a short episode of data driven with my explanation because the presentation opened my mind to this new model of computing. One that could really change the world by solving problems that with current compute are intractable. So ultimately it was was an aha moment for me in terms of what quantum computing can do. And ultimately we are adding more and more compute challenges to our existing infrastructure. At some point, our existing infrastructure is not going to be able to keep up in the ways that it has over the past 30, 40 years, because our circuitry is getting so small um, that we're starting to run into the problem of quantum physics. And I like the idea of leveraging that power, not having that be a uh, a barrier, but having that be a um, changed paradigm. The limitation... The problem is the solution, if you will. Um, And I like this idea of using the rules of quantum physics to our advantage. And that's ultimately what a quantum computer does. The key here is that quantum computing is not going to be a luxury thing or that, you know, that gee whiz thing in the future. It's very much needed. We really need some of the things we would get out of quantum computing now. But really, the key here, this is the important thing, is we can't assume that the last five years of innovation and AI are going to continue into the next five years. In fact, that may actually slow down because we can't keep up with the demands of researchers putting on. Does this sound familiar? This is exactly what happened in the 80s. This is exactly what happened in the late 60s. Right? this It's happening again, again and again. And there's one thing as a data scientist I can do, spot patterns. And this is a pattern. But here's the thing. We have a way out this time. And hopefully, we've all learned from the past that limitations of compute power, both in terms of what's actually possible or commercially viable, precede an AI winter every single time right? Because ultimately what causes an AI winter is the dry up in funding, right? So whether or not something's possible is one thing, but whether or not it's economically feasible is another. So quantum computing is really kind of the way out, right? It could prevent another AI winter. We're not there yet in terms of practical use, although from what I've been reading, we're a lot closer than even I thought we were. So Quantum computing is a huge opportunity right now for you, for me, for anyone who wants to get into this space because it's about to explode, right? Five years from now, recruiters are going to want somebody with five to 10 years of quantum computing experience, right? There's not a lot of people in the world like this right now. Um, and it's again, right now, if you want to get into quantum computing, we're, we're kind of at that inflection point where to work on quantum systems, you kind of have had to have a degree in quantum computing, right? Up until now, but did you know that at one point you had to have practically a degree in electrical engineering to program a computer? But as time evolved, tools got better and the barrier to entry was much, much lower. And I see the same thing happening here. You're already seeing. Um, quantum development kits or SDKs for quantum computers, right? whether that's Q-sharp, whether that's Cirque, whether that's, um, there's another one, PyQ or something like that. It's basically a, a quantum extensions for Python. You don't have to have an, a degree in this type of technology. And now's the time to start experimenting with it. Quantum is coming. It's going to require new skills. It's going to create new opportunities that we can't even imagine right now. And to that point, I'd say now's the time to scale up. So hopefully you'll stick with me um, here at Impact Quantum. Um, Go to impactquantum.com, subscribe to us on iTunes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Definitely check that out. At this point in time, I want to say thank you for listening, and I I will answer the questions that come in live.
0: Thanks for listening to Impact Quantum. We know you're busy and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask, please rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. Of course, you have subscribed to us, haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And can't the world use a little more joy these days? So, go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.